1780, a group of believers in Britain who believed that God's word was inspired and authoritative, who believed that the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is historical and that it is good news, began to meet together. They believed in this good news or this evangel, believing that spreading this good news or being an evangelical would radically transform the hearts of all who received it. Not only did they proclaim the good news, but they also formed many societies or clubs or groups. They formed groups to fight for the abolition of slavery. They formed groups or societies to increase the rights of women in their country. They formed groups for prison reform, and so on and so forth. Believing that the gospel radically transforms our hearts and that impacts every aspect of our lives, how we live, how we think, how we behave in a democratic republic, how we vote, how we engage with leadership, how we serve. Members of the Clapham Society there in 1780 and beyond, some of the names you might be familiar with, William Wilberforce was one of them. Hannah Moore, who is a prolific poet and author, was a member as well as the author of the song we just heard, Amazing Grace, John Newton. Believing fundamentally in the good news of the gospel and striving to live it out in all of life. And so today we begin a series called Life as we look at four critical topics for us as people in this moment, in this culture, as we think about how it is that the gospel transforms our minds and our hearts and shapes our thinking on these issues. And today we will speak about race and racism. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. And in this text, we will see four uh, critical things. Number one is the beautiful diversity that God has designed. Number two is the insidious division that seems to have crept in and saturate societies all over the world. Number three, a call to love. And finally, the power to unify. Beautiful diversity, insidious division, a call to love, and the power to unify. Colossians 3, 8 through 16. I'll read it. I'd encourage you to follow along. We'll also have it up on the screens. It reads as follows. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all of these, 
put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. First, beautiful diversity. You see it in verse 10, do you not? Being renewed in the image and the knowledge, uh, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, that those of us who follow after Jesus were being renewed, made into a new self, a new man, a new woman, made and being renewed in the image of our creator. One of the things that the gospel reminds us is the reality that every person, every human is made in the image of God. There's an old phrase called the Imago Dei, the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In the image and likeness of God, he created them, it says in the scriptures. And we see in people the manifold beauty of the glory and image of God. Within the diversity of people, you see as you look into a diamond with many facets, as you look into the diamond that is humanity, you see the multifaceted or the manifold glory and beauty of God. As we look at our differences, we see the creativity, the artistry, the, the wonderful, beautiful expression of the image of God. In one another. You see it even as if you were to read through the book of Revelation, you see that eternity is full of diversity. The scripture says that the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue sing together. You see in the description of the new heavens and new earth that on the new earth is heaven come down to earth, that that our eternal state is the new Jerusalem. And coming in and out of the gates of the new Jerusalem are all the nations bringing the nation's glory in before the throne room of God to put it on display. My understanding of that text is basically saying this, that all of the cultural beauty, all of the art, all of the clothing, all of the songs, all of the dance, all of the wonder that each of our cultures have created over the course of human history are presented and laid before God in order to glorify him and increase our joy. Heaven is multiracial, multiethnic, multinational. The nations proclaim the glory of God for eternity. If you don't like other nations, you're going to hate heaven. We're all walking around here thinking the street signs in heaven are in English. The glory of God is seen in the beautiful diversity of his people, made in his image. But friends, we have bastardized that beauty and we have leveraged our differences to seek power and authority and abusive control over each other. You see not only in this text the beauty, 
and the diversity. In just a few weeks, we're going to have the Watoto Children's Choir coming to sing and to participate in worship together. We will see the beauty in the midst of the diversity. The strangeness, I hope, will not cause us to fear or grumble, but the difference causes our hearts to rejoice. But we have corrupted it, we've bastardized it, and we leverage our differences for power. You see it here in the text, verse 11. There is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. You have multiple divisions. Us and them. Jew, Gentile. You have at the time of this writing, uh, Jerusalem being occupied by the Romans. The division was strong. And there was ethnic bigotry throughout. All nations, at least to my understanding, and in my research, all nations have in their past and many in their present this insidious division of us and them, whether it be Chinese, Japanese, German, Polish, British, French, Slavic, Romani, Hutu, Tutsi, Aymaran, or Mezistos, all of us are tempted to not view our differences as the multifaceted diamond, but as a sword. And in our nation, I know not all of us are uh, born in the United States. Many of us here within our congregation are immigrants, but in this nation we have a history of us and them. Just as you see here in the text, the division between Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, so too have within our history we seen this writ large through racially based slavery, through the horrors of Manifest Destiny, the Chinese Exclusion Act, Jim Crow, segregation, and on. And many of us who are native Phoenicians like myself, we may feel like, well, that's other parts of the country. But as I did research, talked to many people over the last year, one of the things that I was surprised to discover is that Phoenix also has experienced what's called redlining, where certain areas of town are where certain races would live. In fact, even to this day, you might be able to take a look at our city and say, boy, that area of town has a higher population of certain ethnicities than other parts of town. Why is that? Look at our city's history. And moreover, while it does not, at least from what I can tell, uh, stem from uh, legalities, but there are certain cultural components in our city where there is uh, wrestling with racism and bigotry as it relates to our Hispanic brothers and sisters, or vice versa. And there are many, and and listen, okay, so um, I'm white. (laughs) Cards on the table. Much of my uh, examples are probably going to line up with that from that view, because that's the only way I see it. Y'all with me on that? Like, I can't, the only thing I can do is talk to other people, which I've done a bunch of, I hope to continue to. I hope that you do not feel like I'm singling out 
the culture that I come from. So if you're in the culture that I come from, I'm not trying to single you out because every ethnic group wrestles with us and them. You guys with me on that one? But I don't know other experiences other than my own. And so I hope uh, as a pastor, I'm really going to try my best. I'm going to do my best. If I end up in the process sinning against you, I hope that you will allow your love for the Lord to cover over any sins that I commit in that regard. But we as a people find that this insidious division of us versus them saturates not only our nation and our city, but also the church. Not all of us are Christians here today. I'm glad you're here today. You're actually here on a great day because I'm going to be yelling at some Christians today. So good job. From its inception, the church has been multiracial and multi-ethnic. If you look at the account in the book of Acts of Pentecost, it says that this dude named Peter gets up to preach and everyone was, uh, who was in the crowd was from all over the world and they heard the good news of the gospel in their own language, which means that they were not culturally homogenous. Moreover, one of the things that you see through others, this dude named Paul, he was a pastor. The Bible talks about him. He wrote some of the Bible, crazy guy. He church plants all over the place. And one of the things he does not do is he does not plant Jewish churches and Gentile churches, circumcised churches, uncircumcised churches, barbarian churches, and Scythian churches. He just goes into town and he plants what? Churches. And the church, much of, and this is actually fascinating, you start reading through uh, the New Testament, one of the things that you see come up kind of frequently is like circumcision and food laws and kind of stuff that's weird to us, like why are we spilling ink on this? It was because these cultures were being brought together and unified around Jesus, but their cultural differences were causing what? Clashes. And a healthy portion of the New Testament is pastors writing to people within the church saying, you're unified by more than your culture. Your cultural distinctions should not become cultural divisions. And so we see the church, it's multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multinational. Do we see that today? Maybe even in our country. Oxford Press published uh, some uh, study uh, in and around the year 2000. They, they found that 5% of churches in America were multi-ethnic, meaning that not more than 80%, uh, that the church was not comprised more than 80% of one particular uh, ethnic group, only 5%. Uh, so it, as a, for instance, if the congregation were 79%, um, Hispanic and uh, uh, 21 or 31 percent um, uh, Caucasian, that would be considered uh, multi-ethnic. But if it was 80, 20, they wouldn't consider it multi-ethnic. They found that only 50, per, uh, excuse me, 5 percent of all churches in North America would have been considered multi-ethnic. Now, Brian Loritz, who's a pastor in California, uh, according to his research, he found that the number is smaller. It's about 2.5 percent. His study was done in the last decade. As some people would call Sunday morning the most segregated hour in America. So how is it that we got from multi-ethnic, multi-racial, we're all yelling and screaming at each other, but we're also singing together because of Jesus, church, to only 25 to 5% considered multi-ethnic? It goes even deeper. In the 1920s, 
According to the research, 40,000 Protestant ministers were members of the Ku Klux Klan. The Grand Dragons of Pennsylvania, Texas, North Dakota, and Colorado in 1920 were all Protestant ministers. Orlando Patterson, a Jamaican-born sociologist at Harvard, quotes Wynne Wade when he says this, The Klan's cross-burnings in the 1920s were invariably constrained by a strict, listen, Christian ritual. The ceremony opened with a prayer. The multitude sang, Onward Christian Soldiers. After the hymn, the cross was lit. The explosion of the kerosene and the rush of flames over the timbers were thrilling. And bathed in warmth, left arm outstretched towards the blazing icon, the voices raised in the old rugged cross. The clansmen felt as one body. The irony is that many times during lynchings, the one being lynched and the one doing the lynching were both raising up prayers to Jesus. albeit in different languages, oftentimes. And post-2001, at least in my lifetime, bigotry against Arab and Persian skyrocketed. I know that some of my friends who are Arab who are Christian, have experienced firsthand bigotry at the hands of other Christians. The irony being that for the first 1,400 years of the church's history, if you were to use the word average Christian, you would be speaking about an Arab. For Christianity ran rampant in the Middle East and Persia because of Acts 6. Acts 2, Acts 6, and on. The gospel went forth and to all the nations. Not only within the church, but also personally. Look at verse 8. Let's get real for a minute. But you must now put them all away. So because of the gospel, put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. What was that last one I just said? It... Um, What was that word? Slander and obscene talk. Put them away. I want you to think about the last time you were cheated or offended by someone of another ethnicity. The last time that someone of another ethnicity caused you to be upset. You were cheated. You were offended. You were hurt. Anger. Wrath. Malice, slander, obscene talk. Put them away. Maybe it's not so blatant as those things. Maybe it's something as light as a rolling of the eyes. Oh, there they go again. Maybe it's the Facebook posts or the kitchen table conversations. Or maybe it's the ever-present feeling that I have that goes like this. Why don't those people just conform to my cultural sensibilities? I say that about every single one of you in this room. Why don't those people conform to my cultural sensibilities? 
And I want to give just a caution to those of us in the majority culture, regardless of where we are at. Because, by the way, depending on where you're at in the world, the majority culture thing shifts. But I'll tell you that for me, at least, this is true. John Piper, who is a theologian, wrote a book called Bloodlines. It's an excellent book. One of the things he says is, and he's speaking specifically of African Americans and white uh, culture in America. And this is what he says. For most African American cultures, although I would say this goes for any minority culture in any nation, most uh, African Americans, uh, these realities shape their consciousness profoundly, namely the realities of race. The majority culture has the luxury of being oblivious to race, which would, of course, change in an instant if we moved to Nigeria. Now, one of the things that he's saying here is this, and this is a caution. I am never forced, as a majority culture, to think about my ethnicity or my race. I'm never forced to do that. I barely think about it. But those who are in minority culture, it's an ever-present reality. And for me in the majority culture, I have to seek to understand. For I cannot experientially, experientially understand that apart from changing my location, do you see? And so it could be something as subtle as impatience and eye-rolling. And yet the scripture calls us to love. Look at verse 14. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just like when we sing, we harmonize. The voices come together, not in conflict, but in harmony. And moreover, that love begets compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We need compassion and humility. We're going to do this one more time, and then you say amen. We need compassion and humility when it comes to this conversation. Now, one of the things that I consistently hear from folks is, um, I don't see what the problem is. I want to push in on that. You don't need to understand in order to be compassionate. Now, Now, let me give you a little bit of my life, okay? I'm married to a wonderful Sicilian woman. We argue. We have fights. If my wife comes to me and says, we have a problem, it does not matter if I see the problem. Do I have a problem? I have a problem if she says we have a problem, even if I don't see the problem. I don't need to see the problem before there's a problem that we need to talk about, okay? Now, if my wife came to me, who I love dearly, and she said, Caleb, this is a problem, and I said, you're being illogical, unreasonable, you're being emotional. How would that go down? Lori, how would that go down? She's making this. You're being illogical. You're being unreasonable. You're just speaking from your experience. Here's some statistics. Here's my experience about the the other female I had in a similar scenario. If my wife says there's a problem, what? There's a problem. And with our brothers and sisters who are of different ethnicities than we are, if they say there's a problem, there's a problem even if I don't understand the problem. Y'all with me? We need compassion and humility to have this conversation. Put on, therefore, compassion and humility. Patience. We get ready to amen. 
when it comes to this conversation, we need patience. I don't understand. It's not an excuse to give up. I have to bear your sins. I have to bear with them. And you have to bear with mine. We are to bear one another's burdens, our imperfections, our lack of sight. For those of us that have fought for the cause of racial equality, we have got to bear our brothers and sisters' racist tendencies. You've got to bear with that. You know that already. We need patience. For those of us who don't see the problem, we need to bear with one another in patience, listening long-term. For those of us whose hearts ache, patience. Jesus is doing a work. And the solution isn't kill everybody. That would be the quick way. You want to end racism? End all the racists. Well, who's that? That's me. Rather, Jesus is in the process of transforming hearts. Put on patience, therefore. Bearing with one another. I I have said so many offensive things this morning and in the rest of my life. I was sitting with a friend of mine. She's, I think... I've never asked. I would put her in her 70s or 80s. She's been around for a while. She's African-American. She calls me her grandson. And so we, have, we, we love one another. But I was, making, I was in a room. I was sitting next to her. I made the comment, man, I wish it was like the 80s where it would be easier for a guy like me to be a preacher. It would be easier. I said it would be easier to be a minister in the 80s. And she turned to me and she said, for you. She had to bear with my arrogant, ignorant perspective. She had to bear with that. And in patience and a little bit of a sharp humor, which I love about her, she said, yeah, for you. We've got to bear with one another. We've got to have patience. We have to put on patience or this will not work. But what kind of a love is it that binds the nations together? I mean, how do we have the power to do this? I mean, who are we kidding? For these divisions are so deep. So what kind of love are we called to? Like the band Foreigner, I want to know what love is. (laughs) Y'all are going to be singing that later today at lunch. (laughs) Well, we could do what John Lennon says and just imagine that our differences don't matter. But then we, we... we take away the manifold beauty of our diversity. If we just imagine that we're all the same, we just, we just act like our differences are, are not real, we take away from the manifold beauty of the Imago Dei, the image of God in people. Well, maybe we should just fight against racism. And, and yes, we should take up arms. We're going to do these campaigns. But one of the things is, if there is no foundation to fight against bigotry... It's ridiculous. Here, let, me, let, let me play it out for a minute. And for those of us that aren't Christians, I just want to push on, on you a little bit to get you to think a little bit. On what ground do you think that we shouldn't be racist? If, okay, let, me, let me just say it kind of tersely. 
You and I are nothing more than the products of random chance. We're just sacks of chemicals. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. That does not make any sense. If you are nothing more than a sack of chemicals, why are you mad when I treat you like a sack of chemicals? Y'all with me on that? What grounds will you say we should not be racist? We should not have bigotry in our hearts. Here we see the love of Christ is the foundation, namely that you and I are not mistakes, that you and I are made with inherent dignity, worth, and value. You and I were made by God to reflect an aspect of his glory. That is why we should not treat one another less than. The power to unify, you find it in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. When I am offended, when I am confronted with pain from someone of, uh, who's different than me, my heart default is to think those people or those types. If they would just, that's my heart's default. And what I have to do is I have to recognize the rule of Christ over my heart. I have to lay that down at the cross and say, Jesus, would you help me? And here's the beauty of it. He is faithful. He is a God of peace. Much of this stems from a misplaced identity. My dignity, worth, and value do not come from my ethnicity. Therefore, I do not need to crap all over your ethnicity in order to make myself look better. I, the scripture tells me, Jesus tells me, I am the people of God. I am the chi- I'm a child of God. And so are you. And so we don't have to stab one another. We don't have to undercut one another to make ourselves look better. We are accepted purely by the grace and love of our creator. We don't need to diminish one another. We can celebrate our differences. We can find patience to persevere. And we can glorify God, recognizing that I have the the love and acceptance of the king and creator of the universe. Who cares what everybody else thinks? I don't need to look better than you. As a nation, how will we find healing? I think it comes from the church. I think that the church is the model that Jesus is using to show the world this is how you solve this. This is how you find unity in the midst of diversity is you bind yourselves together on something more than common affinities. Howard Thurman said this, It may well be that we, fi- we, we need to find out if our experience of spiritual unity could be more compelling than experiences which divide us. And the church is the place that that shows. Listen, you may find it ridiculous that we gather every week together to sing. You may find it curious that we would partake of communion, which we're going to do in a moment. And there is a lot behind that, but let me just give you one thing that it does. For a moment in our lives, we are in the room with a bunch of people who are radically different than us, singing in harmony. Showcasing that we are unified by Jesus, though we may be divided by everything else. 
So next steps. Uh, at the bottom of this screen, we have, the, if you go to that website, there's two things I would encourage you to do. Number one, we have, uh, uh, an, it's not an event, it's a series of events. We have some uh, table gatherings um, called Be the Bridge, where we were able to put some people together of different ethnicities, ethnicities to have conversations, to explore, to understand, uh, for some of us to seek reconciliation, for others just to grow in our understanding. Uh, I would put it to you this way. If you do not have deep relationships with people uh, in your life that are not of another ethnicity, I would strongly encourage you to avail yourself of this opportunity, for you will learn, and I think you will rejoice. You might also argue and fight because we have got to be patient with one another. And secondly, for those of us that are parents of younger kids, I did just want to mention this book, uh, and it's at, that, it's at that web. If you go to that website, there's a link for all the resources for this sermon series. You can go there. Uh, it's called God's Very Good Idea, which is an excellent book showcasing, especially to children, but if you're an adult, you should get it too. Uh, written for children, I've, I've read it with my kids, showcasing the multifaceted glory of God in the diversity of people. God's very good idea. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion as an act of unity with God and with one another. Let's pray.